0: this is going to be fun. My name is Mark. I didn't ever introduce myself. I never think to introduce myself. And uh, yeah, we're still relatively new here. We're in like our seventh month here. And it's been such a fun thing for me to watch what's happening here, especially in this Advent series. We, I was at the gym the other day, and there were some college guys talking to us, and they were like, what's coming next in the Advent series? And I'm like, wait a second. There's a college guy in front of me that A, knows what series we're on, and B, cares about where we're going in this. And I'm like, why do you care about the Advent series? They're like, we grew up in a church that didn't really do much with Advent. We just thought Christmas was when Santa came, and it, which he does. And we just thought like, that's just what Christmas was. And they're like, it's so good to know that like, this church is rooted in historical Christianity. I'm like, did you think we were making it up? Like, No, we're trying our best to hold on to the church calendar. And week three of Advent traditionally talks about joy, and we're going to stay right there with it, because the first week, Miles talked about hope, and then last week, uh, Gage talked about peace, and it was so personal, he talked about peace, it was really beautiful. And today, we're going to talk about joy, because joy, if you sat right here during baby dedications, and you watch this little girl run circles around Miles, it, it, she she was the banner and the poster child for joy, not only in her name, but all across the front of her shirt. I'm like, yes, that's it, that's perfect. She is joy right now, yet for so many of us, which I want us to talk about today joy feels a little bit elusive and joy feels a little bit fleeting and joy feels more like a banner that hangs on a front door than sometimes the actual source of our life and so I want us to dig into it today did you bring your bibles on this weekend in December anybody bring your bibles today if you'll hold it up in the air that is good we're going to do a double Bible drill today. I've been here for seven months. I don't know that I've ever seen this, and I don't know that I'm doing it on purpose. I just want to do it. So we're going to turn to two different places today in your Bible. Luke chapter 2. Everybody say Luke. Luke, Luke is the same writer of Acts, so we're not going too far away from Acts. Luke chapter 2 and Isaiah 35. So if you've got a pen or that little uh, dangly thing that hangs here in your Bible, if you'll put that dangly thing in Isaiah chapter 35 because we're coming there later, but we're going to start out in Luke chapter 2. So I'm going to give you a little bit more time to turn there because only my true Bible drill people are already there. Anybody already there? If you're there, say I'm there. Wow. You read your Bibles. I bet you read your Bibles by yourself. (laughs) Did anybody grow up with Advent? You had the wreaths at your church? Anybody? You had the wreaths and someone come out and light the candles and all that stuff? That was a lot of fun. Wish we still did that. I should do that at home. Why not? Courtney, if you're hearing this, we got a new tradition. Luke chapter 2. Where we're jumping into Luke chapter 2 right now we are skipping over like the part where Mary finds out she's pregnant, which is, uh, I'm sure, startling for most. And we're skipping over the part where her husband figures out that his wife's pregnant and it's not his, but he's going to raise it like his. We're skipping over the part where they have to go to Bethlehem, and when they get to Bethlehem, there's no room in the inn, and then she has to go have uh, be away in a manger and she has the baby there and they put the baby in the manger we're skipping all over the birth of Jesus because this is the traditional reading for the advent uh, week three uh, in church history so we're going to read through this and we're going to try to figure out what in the world is going on here and how does it affect our lives now verse number eight chapter two verse eight of Luke and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. We skipped over all the stuff where people are just waiting and anticipating. And we show up to the first people that are actually hearing the announcement that a Savior has been born. Now, if you back up these shepherds, which weren't the highest rated people in the community, they're the first ones hearing the announcement. For the past 400 years prior to this, people had been waiting on a Savior to come. And if you back up even further before that, people had started saying, God told me that someday he was going to send a Savior to our people, and that Savior is going to come. And the very first people that hear about this are in the field at night, watching over sheep. And picture this: an angel of the Lord, and all these people show up in a bright light. And of course, it says they were terrified because wouldn't you be? Like I would walk away and run. I would something bad's going on. But then the angel says, "Do not be afraid. I bring you good news." This is the key: good news that will cause great joy. For all people. This is where the joy part comes in. This is where the joy part comes in for God's people. This is going to be good news, great joy for all people. Now, if we're going to talk about joy, I need to make sure we're working off the same like, definition of what joy is and how, where it comes from and how it works in your life. Because so many of us spend most of our time using the word, uh, literally, I was talking to somebody the other day, joy and happiness kind of interchangeably. Happiness, let me be clear. Happiness is this circumstantial thing. It's being aware of the situation in my life is going well. I'm anticipating something good happening right now. Therefore, my joy, the emotion of joy feels strong. However, this word chara, everybody say chara. Miles uses YouTube to figure out how to do it. Google will do it too. It'll explain to you how to pronounce Greek words. Chara. This is defined like what you think it'd be. It's like a super intense emotional word. It is that deep belly feeling of what most of us could only call joy. But I want us to make sure that we have a biblical understanding of what they're talking about. Because so many of us spend most of our time thinking happy. But happy and joy couldn't be more different. They can sometimes feel the same. But it's about the source. And if you understand the source of joy, it changes the implications of what joy is in your life. So I'm gonna read through several scriptures just to make sure we understand. You don't have to turn to these. We're gonna show them on the screen. This is the verse Miles started with. Romans chapter 15. This is gonna tell us right here. This is what Paul wrote to a group of people in Rome as one of his prayers. May the God of hope fill you with all what? Fill you with all what? Joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy is from God. That's the source of joy. Joy is like originated by God. He's the one that fills you with joy. Joy doesn't look around and say, what can give me joy? Joy is given to us as followers of Jesus As a deposit in our souls, God is the originator of joy, and he's the one that gives it to you. But not only does it give it to you, he's the one that grows in you. How do I know that? Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God is the one that gives you joy, but God is also the one that grows it in you by the power of the Holy Spirit that is given to you. So joy, again, isn't looking around trying to figure out what can give me joy. It's God that says, I'm going to fill you with it. And then I'm gonna be the one responsible for growing it in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's God who gives it to you and it's God who grows it in you. So where does joy come from? It comes from God and it's grown by God. And where does it go? No one can take it away from you. Jesus was looking at his friends. He was about to go to the cross and he's looking at his disciples and he's like, hold on, hold on. I'm about to go away, but I'm gonna come back. And let me tell you this, John chapter 16, verse 22. Here's what he speaks into that moment for his disciples. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one can take that joy away from you. Joy, which feels so elusive and sometimes so hard, is given to you, originated by God, and then grown by the power of the Holy Spirit. And no one can take that away from you. Even in... It's so good that even in Proverbs it says that a joyful heart is good medicine. God's people have been marked by a sense of joy in hard circumstances. It seems like from the beginning. God's people were in uh, Egypt and they were being oppressed and they were being beaten down and they were enslaved and God sent Moses to like set them free. And the scripture says that when they left their slavery and they Got through the red sea that was split they got into the start of the wilderness and they rejoiced and from that moment on god's people continue to go through ups and downs peaks and valleys and they are people that are marked by their joy regardless of circumstances they're marked by their joy go through all of scripture the word rejoice enjoy joy is all over the place. God's people have a characteristic of being joyful people despite their circumstances. But if that is true, if it's God who grows it in you, if it's God who gives it to you and no one can take it away, where does our feeling, our sense, our awareness of joy where does it actually go? I think for some of us we don't have joy because we don't have a biblical understanding of what it is. For some of you, you had never heard that God is the one that originates joy or God is the one that grows it in you and no one can take it away. For some of you, literally your whole life, joy and happiness have been used interchangeably. And you've been chasing happiness and trying to call it joy for others of you. You've just been trying to, um, you have too much. For some of you, it's hard to enjoy anything because you have so much of everything. You have all things available to you. your whole life is mapped out, and your schedule is so full, and you're like, "I don't enjoy much of anything." In Ezekiel I mean, Ecclesiastes chapter six, the writer says, that one of the greatest evils in all of the world is that when a man has everything and can't enjoy any of it, for some of you, it's like you don't have time for joy. For others of you, you feel like your job joy has been robbed. You, you've got a lot of loss and you've got a lot of pain. You've got a lot of fear. And you're like, I used I used to have it. And then that thing happened or the thing keeps happening. Or the diagnosis came and the joy that I had, uh, I don't know where it went. When people are honest about where they're at in life and they start recognizing that joy is like missing or they need to pursue joy. There are several strategies people tend to just make in their own flesh to try to figure out how to feel joyful again. For some of them, they just get cynical. For some people, when they recognize they don't have enough joy or they don't feel joyful, they just get cynical. They just start assuming and telling everyone around them. They're like, you know what? It's always going to be like this. It didn't work out for my mom. It didn't work out for her mom. Therefore, it's not going to work out for me. I married him, he's always like that, he's always gonna be like that, nothing's ever gonna change. They live in this like cyclical world that makes them cynical, that nothing is getting better because if they lower their expectations on what their life could and should be, then maybe they'd feel better about their situation, but that doesn't work. For some of you, you just try to work harder. You've got this like formulaic way that life should be that like if I get into Auburn and I get the job, then I'll be happy. Or you're like, if I marry that person and we have kids, then we will have arrived. If I get that person to say yes to that deal, then we'll have enough money and we'll feel good about ourselves. And you've just got this formula in your life and you're like, if this and this, then I'll get that. And for some of you in this moment, you need, you, you need to hear that right now. You are recognizing for the first time in your life that you have a formula to try to make your life feel better and just A plus B doesn't always equal C and it rarely does. For others of you, Gage called it spiritual bypass last week, if you were here. You are a follower of Jesus and you don't feel very good about the way your life is going, so that you're just gonna fake it. You're just gonna smile, you're gonna present as joyful. There's a pastor in New York City, his name's John Tyson, and he uh, said it recently like this: He said in the church, often the church, elicits a sort of toxic positivity. It's a kind of collective tranquilizing under which the guise of the goodness of God, this functions like a spiritual cortisone shot that numbs the pain for a while so we can function, but it doesn't address the underlying issue of the heart. I call this the Hobby Lobby method. You, don't, you just go to the Hobby Lobby. Anybody ever been to the Hobby Lobby and sing the Christian songs and the thing and get the candy? Like you go to the Hobby Lobby and you just buy the, buy the sign that says joy. <laughs> joy to the world. My life's falling apart. Like yeah, you, nobody puts that sign up. You just buy the big wooden sign and you're just go like I'm putting it on my front door because everybody's going to think I'm joyful because that works. Like I'm just going to put a big sign above my door and you're like, in this house we will worship the Lord. But like, nobody's doing that. <laughs> At Christmas you get the air freshener in your car it says the joy of the Lord is my strength and you're like I don't even know what that means. But I'm, I'm, you're just going to fake it. And you've, for some of you, you think you're pretty good at it. You're like, I need an Emmy Award for that. I'm, I'm like a king actor in my life because I'm just going to fake it till I make it. The problem is if you fake joy too long, you will not make it. You'll be crushed by it. So what do we do? If it's God who gives it, if it's the Spirit, that grows it no one can ever take it away how do we access it how do we grow it again so that we can feel what God has promised us in the first place we need to go back to understand what people were thinking in the ancient Near East the way that people were thinking for the most of ancient Near East there they were cynical but not because they didn't believe the best, but because most of the people in the ancient Near East, when the Old Testament was written, most people understood history to be a circle. You work off seasons. There's a fall, and there's a winter, and there's a spring, and there's a summer, and what, was, what has been is always going to be, and it's going to happen again. Like, it's just this cycle of the way it is. There's a time to reap, there's a time to sow, and then we're going to do it all again. This person does it this way, this person. And it's just, there's this circle that no one can ever get out of. And it wasn't like it was a problem for the Israelites people before this. It wasn't like there was a problem for the people in the ancient Near East. This is just the way life is. Everything's a circle. What has been will be again. And then out of this circle of living, God saw a man named Abram. And he said, Abram, I'm going to take you from here. And I'm going to call you to a new land. I'm going to call you to a new place. I'm going to orchestrate a new history for your people. Everybody else in Ur, where Abram was from, is like, no, no, this is the way we do it. This is the life just goes on and on. You don't have to worry about history because what has been has been before and will be again. We're just stuck there. But God initiates this way of thinking for the Israelite people when he goes to Abram. In and says, no, I'm calling you out of that, and I'm going to place something before you. I'm going to make some promises to you that I'm going to fulfill, and I'm bringing you along. Hold on with me, and I'm going to start making you promises. And then the Israelites start following and the people of God start being developed into this whole new way of thinking that aren't stuck in this like cyclical way of the world, but they're called into a new future that is not determined by their efforts. It is not determined by their good ideas. Their future was promised by God ahead of them. And they had their eyes fixed on what was coming ahead of them. But it didn't always make it good for them. It was up and down. They would go through seasons of oppression. They would go through seasons of slavery. They would go through seasons where all of their money was taken away and everyone would get sick. But yet they had their eyes fixed on a future that was ahead of them that they didn't come up with, that God did for them. God said, I'm doing this thing and come along with me. And the way they would practice this, the way they would try to get their minds around this, because your circumstances in a moment have this just, unbelievable way of blinding you to everything else out there because it's so bright in here the way they did this is God started giving them schedules and calendars to where they would gather together to talk about what God had done and what he's going to do the traditional text that goes along with Luke chapter 2 is Isaiah 35 go ahead and turn there now Isaiah 35. This is what the people of God would do for centuries because God started using prophets to tell the story of what it's going to be like someday. Someday when the Savior comes. Someday when the new king comes. Someday when the things will get better. And the people of God would do this. They would gather in circles. They would gather together. They would cluster together. And someone would stand up and read one of the prophets because these prophets had actually heard from God and said, God said this. This isn't my best idea of what could be. This is what God has said is going to happen, and He's including us in on it as God's people. Isaiah chapter 34, if you want to read it, is a terrible version of the scriptures. Like, it's just like devastation and heartbreak and like disease, and sometimes reads like the the internet news. Like, it's just tough. And then you flip the page to chapter 35, and all of God's people start rallying together. You got to picture this. You gotta picture people in the desert, thousands of years ago, in a hard scenario, gathering together, saying someday, someday, someday this is gonna be different, I don't know when, but let's picture it together. This is what it says, the first chapter, verse number one of chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, which is a flower, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. What's so good about God speaking through the prophet Isaiah here is he acknowledges that there are parched lands. He acknowledges that there are dry seasons for the people of God. The dry seasons, the parched lands, don't surprise God. They're a part of apparently what he's doing. And there is a reality where it feels like you haven't quite bloomed yet. It feels like God is growing something in you. you just don't know when it's going to come out. This is a picture of like you can't see your current circumstances as an ultimate reality. Because the parched land, the unbloomed flower, the dry desert, they're a part of it. That God's wooing you and drawing you to something more. They continue on with this. Strength, verse number three. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then, imagine them gathered in the desert. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, they'll be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs, and the haunts where the jackals once lay grass and reeds and papyrus will grow again this isn't Isaiah just making stuff up this is something that a desperate group of people in the desert would have to regularly gather around to say is God up to something maybe someday let's God made this promise let's rally around this promise again even though our circumstances don't look like it but God's doing something I don't know how he's doing it for us reading it thousands of years later we see Jesus all over this well it's all over the place strength in hands feeble knees that give way those that are fearful, the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, like we see Jesus all over it. But the imagination that it takes for an Israelite thousands of years ago to read about this and then get the picture of what it's gonna be like when Jesus comes, like that's so hard. The faith of these Israelites was so strong because we have the luxury of understanding, oh, Jesus is all over this. They're just holding on to a promise that feels so vague, but they're just holding on. And then they continue on like this. Because there's a way. Verse number 8. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. I'm the way, the truth, the life. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. The wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. Only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return then. ready for this they will enter zion with singing everlasting joy will be the crown on their heads gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away this is about return this is about salvation this is about god keeping his promises can you picture a group of people in a desert gathering around saying someday this is going to happen and it it's gonna be so good. And when people understand that when God comes back, they're always gonna be marked with joy. They're always gonna be full of joy. And that takes us to Luke chapter two, when the shepherds announced that this is gonna bring good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Israelites would gather and do this so often because they were in a long season of anticipation they were in a long season of advent where they were like is he ever going to come is god going to keep up with his promises every time they would regather and they would relook at what god was going to do they would rejoice they would understand they might not feel joy right there but they would have to choose joy again when they look at what God is going to do, they say, "This it doesn't feel like joy right now, but there's joy out here in front of me, so I'm going to realign my vision, and I'm going to joy again. I'm going to choose to put my joy and attach my joy to what God is going to do in the future. Joy isn't about your circumstances. Joy isn't about how it's going lately. Joy isn't about what you're about to get joy. is about what God has promised his followers So I just got a couple questions for you today. Question number one, to what is your joy attached? This has got to be an honest question for you. To what is your joy attached? Is it attached to the circumstances? Is it attached that if you get into school next week and you figure out about this, is it attached to like if they come back? Or is it attached to like, no, I'm going to attach my joy to a God who came as a baby in Bethlehem and he made me promises that he would never leave me or forsake me, and he won. Am I going to attach my joy to that or what's going on around me? I can't answer that for you. You have to answer it. Question number two, where do you need to rejoice? Where have you let the circumstances of your day dominate all of the feelings and emotion you have in your life? And you need to repent from the way that you're thinking about that and look towards, no, I'm going to lean into God's promises here. So where is your joy attached? And where do you need to rejoice? Now, we um, don't know a ton of you in here because we've only lived here for seven months. And sometimes you can come into a place like this, you can't even remember my name right now, that's fine. And you're like, who is this guy talking up there and talking to me about joy? Does he even believe this? Does he practice this? So we don't have track record, we don't have history. Does he? If you could understand how personal this message is for us right now. I'm having an answer to answer these questions in real time. Your pastors here at this church, we are so committed to following Jesus that there's oftentimes a message that you're assigned to study that becomes a life that you live. It was um, 33 days ago that my wife and I were pregnant with our fourth child. Until we weren't. For unto us a baby is going to be born. Until it wasn't. We were about 11 and a half weeks with our fourth trial. We've got three unbelievable kids. And we were so excited about our fourth. Prayed for it, asked God for it, got other people to pray with us. And it was a Tuesday. And Courtney texted me and said, Hey, something's not right with the pregnancy. I'm like, All right, I'm on my way home. I'm here. I'm going to drive over by the airport because we live over there. And I'm like anxious and fearful. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. God, yeah, I don't, you don't know what I'm stepping into. I'm like, I don't, okay, I'm on my way home. I live seven and a half minutes away. By the time I was about to turn left onto Bent Creek, I got another text from her that said, I'll never forget. We lost the baby. She's at home. Our three-year-old's there. Our five-year-old's there. And I kind of came unglued. And I was crossing over the interstate, and I'm like, feel like I'm fighting with God. Like, what in the world? We prayed for this. You said we were getting this. Like, I don't understand. And I'm, then I'm scared of like, Is Courtney okay? I'm just so angry and emotional. And crossing over the interstate, the weirdest thing came out of me. It was 33 days ago. I quote the oldest book in the Bible. I said, God, I hate everything about what's going on right now. I hate it. I didn't bring anything into this world, and I'm not taking anything out of this world. You're the one who gives and you're the one that takes away and i will praise you in the middle of all this and i will praise your name and I, was, I didn't manufacture that no. i'll stand here today saying look how good i did i was mad and i was hurt and i walked into my house and it was bad I'd go to the doctor with courtney like a few minutes later we didn't have an appointment. You don't have an appointment for that kind of stuff. I just walk right in. They're like, the woman at the front desk said, like, hey, how can I help you today? And I'm like, we had a miscarriage about 40 minutes ago. Whew. She didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. Courtney couldn't even say it. We get back into the little doctor's office, and the woman, the clerk, came out. I mean, the, the nurse, she came out. And she's like, hey, what's going on? What are you all in for today? And I'm like, looking at Courtney, I'm like, I'll say it. We had a miscarriage about 45 minutes ago no one knows what to say in that moment. And then the weirdest thing happened in that room. Courtney looks at the nurse that we had had before and said, is that an engagement ring on your finger? I'm like, what? She goes, yeah, I just got engaged this past weekend. Courtney's like, that's awesome. And then begins to celebrate for this girl. And I'm like, this is so frustrating. It's so confusing. We're in the middle of like, Lost right now. And you're how did you notice that? What God plants in you and deposits in you, He will grow it at the right time. I wish that we had more resolution with this. I I wish I could stand here to say that Courtney and I didn't sit Wednesday crying again about this. God's the one that planted something in me and Courtney. God's the one that grows it at the right time. And no circumstance is going to take it away from me. Because I'm attaching. To where is my joy attached? That. Jesus wins. I don't like what we're doing right now. I don't like how I feel. I don't feel super happy but I've got a deep well of joy that keeps showing up at the right time over and over and again, because my God has made me a promise that he's never gonna leave me or forsake me. And he's holding on to me. He's holding on to Courtney and the rest of my kids because he wins. Their story's not about us. It's about making the name of Jesus the most important headline. And where do I need to rejoice? got to fix my eyes on jesus and i gotta lean into joy which can hold it all at the same time and here's how two weeks ago Courtney and i were here miles was here and miles called us into his office and i get into his office and i've i've known miles for a while i've never seen miles nervous and he was nervous in his office and because like, it feels like one thing after another is happening hard, I'm like, why am I getting fired? Am I getting fired today? Like I'm walking in his office, I'm like, I don't want to get fired. <laughs> and he, um, he said, I don't know how to tell y'all this. But his, Courtney, and him, he said, we're pregnant with our fourth, and our due date almost the exact same due date y'all had. I didn't know how to tell y'all you got a really good pastor here who's very pastoral I don't know who said it it was either myself or Courtney looked at miles I said miles because of God's grace and his joy we can hold every bit of our loss and pain and mourning and grief and disappointment at the same time We can hold all the miracle that is that you and Courtney are getting your fourth. We can hold all the celebration that you're a man of God, married to a woman of God that's raising children of revival. We can hold it all at the same time because our life is not built on this moment that we're holding. Our life is in letting go And fixing our eyes on something that is greater ahead of us. A story that's bigger than our individual stories. And we can hold on to that. Joy has the capacity to take every emotion that you feel at the same time. And yet hold on. I wish joy was like a drone that would take you over a thing to get over. It's like a line I'm holding on to that gets me through. Because my future is secure. Because Thousands of years ago, God fulfilled his promise and he was born in Bethlehem. Where do I get this fix my eyes thing? It's because Jesus did it. Hebrews chapter 2 verse number 1, therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Why? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning at shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus modeled this, that he's going to fix his eyes on something greater he can endure right now because his joy is attached to what the Father is doing. And I want to live like Jesus, and I want to attach my joy, my life, my hope, my faith, everything on the ultimate picture that Jesus wins. The circumstances over here might be tough and there's gonna be good days ahead and there's gonna be hard days ahead, but this will not rob my joy and this church will not rob your joy. You've got to re-anchor your life on the promises God has laid out in front to be faithful to the moment that you're in. We're gonna do two things. One, we're about to take communion. So if you've got your communion, you can go ahead and get it out, your communion set. This, again, is a picture of God's people, followers of the way, remembering what Jesus has done and what he will do. Take this moment of communion to remember that God is faithful. And when we take the bread and the wine or the juice, we're remembering that he was faithful, and he was faithful then, he's gonna be faithful in the future. And then we're gonna to sing together as a way to rejoice or to joy again Father, for this group of people, would you help us see how good you are to us? Would you paint a picture for the people of this room? Of what you want to do? Of promises that you have made that are all through the scriptures? Would you give them eyes for the next few minutes to see all the ways that you're ahead of them and let them attach their joy to you? wins. It's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.